Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Arnie Sherman. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie Sherman, it's a good Sunday morning. Scott, I'm very excited that a, a, a longtime colleague of yours is going to join us on the show today, Rick Blywise. Tell us a little bit about Rick. Well, of what I know about Rick, Rick and I worked together in the music industry in the 90s and the 00s, and he was one of my first bosses, Arnie, and just an incredibly creative, generous, supportive person. Was he a who- good boss? No, he was a great boss. He, I had several bosses when I worked in the division that he oversaw uh, in the distribution company. And everybody who I worked for really took his lead in allowing you to be very creative and explore, you know, uh, experimental in helping ideas and music artists find their audience. And uh, it taught me a lot of valuable lessons that I still use to this day. And that was early in your career. To have so- it was great that you had somebody as inspiring is that to uh, to help you uh, shape your career absolutely now he has followed a, a passion of his which is writing he's an author 77 years old he's turned out a a well-reviewed well-received and and uh uh you know a, a very interesting uh you know concept he's recreated you know sort of uh elizabethan or later england 1910 as i as i've read about it, and a, a very interesting named character, Pignon Scorpion, and the barbershop detectives. Already, it sounds like something you want to pay attention to and, and see what that's all about. So I'm, I'm anxious to uh, to hear about his, his career and how it led him at the age of 77 to start uh, writing novels. He's a fascinating guy because he's not afraid to take chances and not afraid to put himself out there and look, he's created an incredible book published by Blackstone Publishing. Um, yeah. He, uh, the one thing I remember so vividly about Rick was his energy. And I think in this interview, uh, if you don't get Rick with high energy, then something's wrong. He'll be high energy. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And, and thank you for uh, thinking of him for, uh, for our show. A hundred percent. All right. Well, when we come back, our guest will be author and music industry uh, a legend, Rick Blyweiss, back after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Arnie, we are back with our guest, author of Pinion Scorpion and the Dete- Barbershop Detectives, Rick Blyweiss. Rick, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks, Arnie. How about you? you know, I'm, I'm doing terrific. I'm excited about having a chance to chat with you today. We rarely get a Renaissance man like you on the on the show someone that's uh, you know author journalist rock musician way back music industry exec have recreated some of this nostalgic uh you know sir arthur conan doyle agatha christie who done it flavor with uh, pinon scorpion and the barbershop detectives and i guess my first question for you you've had a you've had a long and storied career did you start out when you were younger writing and then moving into the music area? I mean, how do you how do you describe yourself? What do you think of yourself looking back now? Are you a, a music person that writes, you know, or or a person that's an author and writer who uh, just, uh, you know, uh, migrated into the music industry and, and that uh, took up a lot of your life? Realistically, I would have to say I my entire life, I was on a dual track. 
Um, that makes it, sense. It wasn't one or the other. And to give you an example, uh, on the music side, when I was probably about eight or nine, um, I, I cajoled my parents into giving me guitar lessons. I mean, I, and when I say cajoled, I mean, I wanted I I wanted to do rock and roll. They wanted me to do classic. Guitar was not exactly a classic instrument, right? So you know, but I won. Um, yeah, if so, you're not going to be a doctor, Rick, you're going to play the piano, right? Exactly. <laughs> so so I I started playing guitar very young. I got my first electric guitar when I was twelve. I started playing in bands and writing music when I was eleven or twelve. 13, somewhere in that era. But at the same time, it, when I was 12 years old, I wrote a sports newspaper that I made four carbon copies of and sold to my four closest neighbors. <laughs> so, and, and then I stayed in bands, I stayed writing music, I stayed performing music. And at the same time, I wrote a play when I was 15. I went to film school and I wrote film scripts to the student films that I was making. So I was, but at the same time, I was always in bands and recording and, and touring. So it was really always a dual track. And I kind of also just to add something, I, I've also been good at business. So I think one of the things that my parents gave me, because they were the same way, was a very balanced left brain, right brain. Because I, I was able to do both creative and what I'll call analytical or business. And it served me well over my career. And I enjoy doing both. So it's not like I hate one and it brought the money in. I actually enjoy doing all of it. So for our listeners, as I'm talking with Rick, I'm looking behind him and seeing records on the wall. And it looks like in some cases CDs. And so so how did your music industry, you know, executive kind of experience take take hold? How did that unfold? Um, it started actually when I was in my first three years of undergrad and I, it, I was at the University of Miami. I eventually transferred to NYU and got my film degree there. But I started at the University of Miami. While I was there, I saw an advertisement on the campus newspaper for an intern for Colpix Records. And um, this was pre the monkeys. I mean, they had a roster filled with crap. But uh, so I answered the ad. I, like a number of other students, uh, interviewed and I got the job. And my job was to bring posters and other merchandise materials to the record stores in Miami. But I really had more aspirations than that. So I told them that I'd be willing if they sent me records to also go to radio stations to try to get the records played because they had no regional or local promo man in the state of Florida at that point. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting records played um, I, mainly on their middle of the road station because they would play anything anybody brought to them because nobody ever brought them anything. <laughs> so I keep phoning in to the home office, all these, right. you know, I got this record on, I got that record on. We'll make a long story short, they ended up giving me the entire state of Florida to promote with all of their records, R&B, pop. I visited every radio station that had a transmitter tower and I became pretty good at it. Uh, it's so good that I was spending more time doing that than studying. And I was playing in bands at the same time, too. Okay. Any I notable, did. Rick, any notable artists that we would know or remember? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The two biggest projects that I worked when I was there were Lanny Kazan and the Lord Jim soundtrack. That'll give you an idea. Of <laughs> You didn't even have question mark in the Mysterious, you know, or nobody like that. God. 96 tears. Yeah, 96 tears. So let me ask you this. You, you've you worked over your career with lots of well-known artists. You know, Scott mentioned this, you know, Melissa Etheridge and Backstreet Boys and Whitney Houston and uh, U2, Kiss, Bee Gees, some of the biggest names in the industry. As a as a musician, did any of these groups or did all of these, who, who starstruck you the most? 
when you were working with them? Wow. Um, I would, I guess I'd have to say David Bowie. Yeah, I could see that. You know, I mean, the charisma around him, he was yeah. mythical, even, you know, in the early part of his career. Yeah, although I'll, I'll tell you, Barry Gibb was a close second. Really? And, and a, but I will also tell you that of all the artists I worked with, the one that I enjoyed the most, mm -hmm. and I enjoyed him because he was like me. He wasn't just creative. He had an incredible, incredible marketing brain. And that was Gene Simmons of Kiss. Right. He still has that brain. I've seen him, you know, even now, Sarman mm -hmm. Howard recently, you know, and he's uh, he's still active, you know, and thinking and working through stuff. Yeah, I, I remember the, the first album that I ever did the marketing plan for of theirs. It was in 79. I think it was Destroyer, if I'm not mistaken. Um, had I was made for loving you on it. Yeah. And they, they, he and his manager, Bill LaCoyne, asked me to put the marketing plan together. So I put a marketing plan together. I go to their offices and um, I sit down. Gene goes, do you have the marketing plan? I go, yeah. He goes, listen, I kind of wrote one out, too. Do you mind if we go through mine first? And I went, no, go ahead. Go for it. His, I, I wrote a really good marketing plan. His was better. Yeah, wow. You know, and we became friends. We had some adventures together. And, uh, you know, Rick, you know, it's interesting. I'm curious, starting in college and then, you know, through the 70s and 80s, you saw kind of the professional growth and maturity of the music industry. You know, yeah. so what, what was that like? I mean, you know, it, it really was transformative in a lot of ways, wasn't it? Yes. And what, what transformed the music industry the most was major corporations buying the record companies from the individual entrepreneurs who had started them. Uh -huh. In fact, Forbes magazine, for most of my career in the music industry, refused to call the music industry an industry. <laughs> they thought it, it had no good business practices. <laughs> that classification. And they were right to some degree. <laughs> And yeah. what, what, but what I saw happen was that some of the just fun, you know, let's make it happen attitude went by the way of here are the corporate rules and regulations, and this is how we do things. Mm. And it, it, it made for better business, but it sure as hell made for less fun. Well, you know, one of the things that I just read was an article which said that today's singer-songwriters and bands are having a tough go of it because more music that's being streamed, which is the way most music is being consumed these days, is old music. Mm -hmm. It's more than contemporary acts. Um, and I think there's just an absolute thirst for nostalgia and for the old, not just the nostalgia for the sake of it, because it was just great music. Mm -hmm. And great personalities. Rick, do you remember the first album you ever bought? Okay. Um, I remember the first <laughs> the first thing I actually ever bought were two uh, EPs, not LPs. Right. Uh, one was the Weavers at Carnegie Hall, and the other was Huddy Ledbetter. <laughs> um, the first single I ever bought in the quote-unquote rock and roll era was a thing called Butterfly by Charlie Gracie that most people never even heard of. Um, and I know one of the absolute earliest albums that I bought was uh, Chet Atkins album. And sure. another was the very first Jerry Lee Lewis album. But that, wow. that that was maybe even a little later. I'm sure there were others. Um, I know I, I had very early on Belafonte at Carnegie Hall, too. My right. parents were really into world music. I mean, you know, for people living in New York City suburbs at the time, it wasn't typical, but they, they I mean, they introduced me to Miriam Makiba and, you know, people like that and the Weaver. Sure. Just I remember having an early, the early Belafonte album and, Johnny Mathis's first album in 58 or 59, which he called, which was a great marketing thing. 
Greatest Hits. His first album was called yeah, Greatest right. Hits. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I, I, think I, remember, stayed, I think it stayed on the charts for like 10 years. Yeah, I think like it did. I, I remember yeah. singles more than I remember yeah. albums. I was a real singles buyer. Some of our listeners won't even know what singles are. You just get the 45s and you were hoping there was something decent on the other side, right? That's right. When exactly. the Beatles came out, they they kind of made made the, the, the two sides work because their their B sides were always great songs to you know to, out of their chart. So although I will tell you, two yeah. records that come to mind way pre Beatles, where the A and the B sides were absolutely both hits, was Richie Valens, Don and La Bamba. Yeah, mm. and the other one, which you may or may not remember, was it, it was unique because it had two different artists on it. On one side, it had Buddy Knox doing Party Doll. And on right. the other side, it did had Jimmy Bowen doing Bebop, I Love You, Baby. I'm sticking with you. Well, my favorite A and B were what John Sebastian had on one side. Uh, um, you know, I, I think it was uh, Hot Hot uh, Summer in the City. Yeah. And the other side was Darling Be Home Soon, which I always thought was a better cut than the A side of that album. I loved both of them. That that's, that was great. Let me go back to David Bowie. What was it about David Bowie when you know among the other artists? That just made you say, "Wow, I'm in the praise. I'm in. I'm in the presence of greatness." Well, I I got to work with him later in his career, so he was already a legend by the time I got to him. And right. when I met him, just the way his brain worked, the way he comported himself, you know, it it, it was just. Um, I don't know. I felt like I was in the presence of a special human being. Right. And his, I've so, I saw, I was lucky enough to see him live a few times. He was, you know, one of the, even though they didn't call him that, I guess they did at some point, but he was a performance. When you saw him, it was more than just him singing right. and kibitzing with the audience. It was a whole experience. Yes. Performance and, art. Yeah it, was, it, yeah. it was performance, you know, sort of like Laurie Anderson, who, who Scott has worked with and, and knows very well, sort of her way of, uh, of conveying music or, uh, you know, or uh, the talking heads and, and their way of, uh, of interacting with audience. Well, it's, in it's interesting because David Bowie was probably one of the first artists to really get on the whole digital transformation yeah. in the, in the mid to late nineties. So he, there's a kinship with him and he and uh, Gene Simmons, they were both kind of very forward thinking, which Rick, yeah. I have to say, having worked for you, and, you know, worked alongside of you over many years. That was one of the things that really distinguished your career was just an ability to kind of see all the opportunities and kind of be able to, as you made, as you pointed out before, kind of just like go and do it. Like, let's go do it. Let's try that. Let's do that. And that's a very liberating kind of way of thinking in business that a lot of people are, are afraid to do these days. So how has that helped you kind of as you transition into, into becoming an author and a, a writer? Well, Scott, you know, my, I have tried I, as long as it's legal and it's not going to hurt me. <laughs> I, I basically tried, you know, everything that came along during my life. It's, you know, like as Wayne Gretzky said, you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. You know, which I like the quote, which he didn't say, even though it was attributed to him. Um, you know, you can't score if you don't shoot. So, you know, my my whole life, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but I uh, I created a company called Your Name and Lights on Broadway. There was a big sign, the Spectacolor sign on the building where the apple drops. Yeah. And I did a licensing deal with them so that if you wanted to wish your wife happy birthday, I'd put happy birthday up there. You could either see it or we could take a picture of it and send you a poster. Or, and, you know, I created the company. I did a licensing deal with with Spectacolor and it was an absolute abysmal failure. <laughs> but you know what? The chase of the pot of the gold, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow to me, that chase was always more exciting than finding the pot of gold. Sure. I found it and I didn't find it, but I loved the chase. And I just kind of feel that um, that's a, a great philosophy for people to live with is, is take chances. If, if, you know, try things, don't be locked into a box 
where, uh, you know, everything is the way it's always been. And that's the way it's going to be. I, I just don't believe in that. And look, I'm 77, my, a debut published author. And I hope I'm an example to other seniors that your, your life isn't over when you reach a certain age. Absolutely right. We, I think we both agree on that. Before we talk about the book, I have one, I have one last question about your, your uh, early part of your career. Was there an artist that you got involved with very early before they became a star that you just knew was going to make it and you and you had great satisfaction seeing seeing their career unfold? I would have to say that there were two in specific and they were the two that I really had a hand in helping make. You know, I mean, I, I didn't do it alone. Nobody ever does it alone, if you will. Sure. But, you know, there are people who are more instrumental and not unless I was more instrumental. But in both cases, I just saw the talent and I went, this is going to happen. And that that was well, actually there are three. The, the, the first one was Melissa Etheridge. Right. The second one was the Backstreet Boys. Right. And the third one was Sarah McLaughlin. Yeah. Well, all three of them, you can see the talent there. In fact, one of my favorite versions of. Uh, uh, of the Bruce Springsteen song, you know, uh, that he does with her is, is, you know, he, in almost all of his concerts, he, you know, he does, um, um, Thunder Road. Right. And his version with her is the, is I think the gold standard of that song. Yeah. It's they quite both different. have the right voices, you know, to fit yeah. together. Rick, Rick, it's interesting because you bring up those three artists and all three kind of broke pre kind of the America's got talent, uh, you know, uh, uh, American Idol kind of phenomenon that we actually participated in too through our company. But you got you and your colleagues were really the judges of, you know, what was good music and what deserved to kind of break through, right? Because you you kind of control, I say control, but kind of you had access to the retail outlets. When there were record stores. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and, it, and it's kind of interesting because, I mean, for, you know, anybody that's out there who's listening, you know, it's really more the um, artists and repertoire, the A&R people who decided, you know, what would get signed along with, you know, the, the presidents and CEOs of the labels. So what, what my job and, and job of people like me was, was to take the artists that they believed in and make them happen to the best of our ability. So we did have a hand in that. Um, the only artist actually where I would say, not I shouldn't say the only, but where I actually had an input in chasing or not chasing was Melissa, um, because I, um, I was hired by Island to be head of sales. And uh, the GM handed me a stack of CDs on a Friday when I was hired and said, you're going to start work on Monday. I want you to listen to these over the weekend and come back on Monday and tell me which one or two you think we should be chasing because there are more than this company can handle at this point. So I went home and I listened to them. I don't remember who the second one was, but the first one that I absolutely loved was Melissa Etheridge. So I go back on Monday and I tell Bill, Bill Berger, the guy who was the GM, mm. I said to Bill, so Bill, he said, you know, what do you, what do you think? And I said, and I don't, again, I don't remember what the second one was. I said, but the one I really think we should go after is Melissa Etheridge. And Bill looked at me and he said, good man. I knew why I, now I know why I hired you. <laughs> okay. I mean, that was obviously who he was hoping I would say, uh, because that's who he believed in. But it was obvious to me when you heard, you know, uh, similar sure. features and bring me some water. And, you know, it, it's you like, knew. Yeah, I knew. Yeah, let's, you do, knew. let's do a quick idea. Our guest is Rick Blyweiss, author of Pinion Scorpion and the Barbershop Detectives and Music Industry. <laughs> and he's yeah. holding for exactly. We only do audio, but still, the it's a beautiful cover. <laughs> I, I held up the book, so it's got a blue cover. <laughs> Rick, I, one last thing before we leave the music. I also think you brought up the Backstreet Boys, and I distinctly remember being flown up to Montreal with you and with Pete um, and Barry and our whole group to yeah. see them at a, an ice rink. Yeah. You know. <laughs> 
in yeah. Canada on a wintry night. And th th Arnie, this is before they broke in the United States. Right. And th they actually broke, correct me if I'm wrong, Rick, they broke in every other territory but the U.S. But well, we, I, I, right? I'll give you the short story version of this. Sure. Okay? Jive Records came to me. It's, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm just telling you what happened. Jive Records came to me. They had put out the first Backstreet Boys single in the U.S. and it stiffed. It did not do what they wanted it to do. But we all believed in this act. So they, they came to me and they said, Rick, do you have any ideas of how we could break this band? So we set up a meeting for the next week and I came in with two ideas. And the first idea I gave them was, let's forget the United States. Let's bring the boys to Europe. Let's make them conquering heroes over there. Their sound is very European in terms of the dance product they were putting out, et cetera. And then let's bring them back and have a ton of girls meet them at the airport like they did for the Beatles. Now, I was suggesting we even hire the girls if we need to. When <laughs> <laughs> we brought them here, we didn't need to hire them. They showed up. Uh, so that was the first thing we did. The second thing that I suggested was that we make Walmart Backstreet Boys headquarters, because at that point, Walmart was dabbling in music and they wanted to be better known for selling music. And so I just thought this would be a great way. So, Scott, as a prelude to your seeing them up in Montreal or Canada, mm -hmm. what happened was we went to Walmart and they said we need to see them. We have to make sure they're clean enough for the Walmart image. So what we did was we flew their representatives to Switzerland to a concert at an ice skating rink in Switzerland as well before the Montreal thing. And um, we filmed the concert. They, it was a Christmas concert. So they were like, you know, motherhood and apple pie with Santa Claus. <laughs> and I had never witnessed anything like this in my life. I mean, they were pulling girls out of the crowd that had fainted. There were nurses stations. I mean, I could not believe what I was seeing. It was hysteria. I had, I had never seen that before. So anyway, we, we go back. The representatives show the footage to uh, to Walmart and they go, all right. Now we want to send our key executives to go see them. That was the trip to Canada. And that is when they agreed to become Backstreet Boys headquarters. And the rest, as they say, is history. Fantastic Amazing. story. Amazing. So, so Rick, grew up in New York. You've been living now for a, a good period of time in Ashland, Oregon. Yeah. Write a book that sort of takes place in a previous time and a previous place with a character, you know, like like Pinon Scorpion. How did that all come to uh, fruition? Okay, well, as I said, I, I had I've kind of written my whole life. I've written newspaper articles and columns and magazine articles, and I've just always written. But almost all of it was nonfiction. I even uh, contributed some chapters to some nonfiction anthologies on the music industry over the years. Um, I moved to Ashland, ostensibly having retired from the music industry. And I got very, very bored. I had all this knowledge that I had accumulated. And I'm a type A personality. I just can't sit around. I'm not a bridge player. I'm not a golfer. I'm not a tennis player. I tend to do things more with my mind than my body, other than exercise. Um, so... Uh, I joined boards of directors. I joined the board of directors of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the, Ar the Ashland Film Festival, uh, the Food Bank, uh, the university, whatever. And my next door neighbor, who I got to know, was a woman who was a poet. And we get to be friendly. And she said to me, uh, so I'm in this writer's group. Um, You've written. Why don't you come? I think people would like you. I think you'd like the members of the group. Why don't you come and, and try it out? So I went and I started really liking the members of the group. And a number of them started writing short stories or were writing short stories. So I said, all right, I'm going to try my hand at writing fiction short story. And so I did. And they liked it. And I liked the process. And then I wrote another. And then on about the fourth story that I wrote, uh, this is the way I write, by the way. I sit at a computer and I see whatever I'm going to write play out in my brain like a movie. 
And my job is literally to type it and capture for a reader what I'm seeing playing out in my head. I, I'm a pantser. I don't outline. I don't set anything up in advance. I just go with what I what I see playing. And this setting of a 1910 Downton Abbey-like English countryside hamlet um, with a new police inspector, chief inspector who's very Holmes Poirot-like, was just there in my brain. And I didn't have a name for him. I didn't have anything for him. And I just started writing the story. And then I did a little research and I fleshed out, researched into getting his name, his background. Uh, it just sort of came to me with the research I did. And I brought the story into the group. And the group said, this is wonderful. You can't just leave this as a short story. This needs to be a book. And I was writing two other books at the time. One was a sci-fi book and one was magical realism. Uh, neither of those are ever going to see the light of day and for good reason. But um, I ended up uh, writing Scorpion and it was with their encouragement and their assistance, you know, critique, critiquing it in the early days that made the whole thing possible. How long did that process take? Because that's a, a major achievement. I, on and off, I wrote the book over uh, five years. Wow. That is a long gestation period. Is that traditionally how long it takes? Or Well, I, I just turned in the second book last week to my publisher, and that one took me under a year. So I, I have Got two it. completely different experiences. <laughs> And it's the second book, a continuation of the same character. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, it, so you have other exploits that uh, Pignon is now going through in your mind. Yeah. Well, in the in the first book, you know, there's three crimes: a fortune seeker, a murder at a circus, and a crime of passion. In the second book, there are also three murders. Uh, there's a uh, blacksmith who is murdered on his way home from birthing twin calves. There's a hot air balloonist who is shot and killed while alone in the balloon up in the air. And there is a client of one of the barbers who drops dead in his barber chair. And they're trying to uh, figure out what killed him. I've already started the third book. And the third book has a magician in it who interacts with Houdini. So I'm all over the place. <laughs> Do you ever so see? As... Sorry. Oh. I was going to say, so you've seen these in your mind. So the logical question is, do you see these as a a movie at some point or a TV you know, series or, you know, how do you see this playing out? Well, I'm going to tell you something that is not common knowledge yet because the press release is only going out tomorrow. But as of last Friday, um, the book was just optioned by a UK TV film production company. Fantastic. Wow. Mazel tough, as we say. Congratulations. That's in Montana, we say that. Absolutely. That's I mean, great, Rick. Many a slip twits the cup in the lip, as they say. <laughs> but it's a hell of a start, let me tell you. Well, get us that press release so we can include that, because this show start, airs on Sunday. So, show, yeah. So when you visualize Pinon Scorpion, do you have an actor in mind? Does he have a, is he connected to somebody? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I'll give you a roundabout answer and a firm answer both. Right. Uh, Scorpion's background, which again came to me, I didn't do this purposefully, it was just there, is his father was Egyptian and his mother was Haitian. So that could make him a man of virtually any skin tone. Right. Anything from, you know, pink to sallow to to brown, to whatever. So I've never, want, I've never done or asked for a picture of Scorpion to be done other than in silhouette, because I want the reader to picture who he is. I don't want to tell them who he is, because he could be so many different things. Now, to answer your question specifically, if this was many, many, many years ago in his youth, the actor I would have loved to see him play him is Omar Sharif. Yes. And mm. the one that came to my mind when you were describing him is Rami Malek. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he has that kind of 
look where he could play many different kinds of characters from Freddie Mercury to, you know, a James Bond, uh, you know, uh, a killer. Yeah. You know, so yeah, and there cool. are some really good actors uh, today that, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, could do a great job with him uh, again, spanning the gamut of what they look like. So as you're writing, Scott and I have a great name for you for a character. Yeah. Particularly if you're doing an if there's ever an American character in one of these books. Yes. The the the, the late developer of the of the area that we live in in Montana, who was a uh, he owned a gas station in New Jersey. <laughs> had one had one of the best names for a character I've ever I've ever come across in real life. That's His a heck of a setup. What is it? <laughs> His name was Buddy Seal. Buddy Seals? <laughs> Seal. S E. You're like S E A L E. Buddy Seal. Buddy Seal. It just just sounds like a guy, you know, who's uh, on the lamb, you know, or, uh, you know, gets witness protection. Involved. Yeah, yeah. Witness protection program. Buddy Seal. I like that. You, he's no longer alive. You can use his name in, in any form or fashion. Although it is so pretty we, close to Bobby Seal. That's yeah. right. That's what I thought yeah. when he said that. No, but Buddy, there's something about Buddy, yeah. the name Buddy, right? Buddy I Hackett, mean, Buddy Seal. My, you know, my, Buddy. It's just, my very first friend when I was growing up was named Buddy. Oh, there's a connection there. <laughs> Rick, there's, do you ever see there's do you ever a connection see, there? Do you ever see the do you ever see Pignon Scorpion interacting with mu the music industry or musicians? You know your other world. Uh, because of the era, I doubt it. You know, okay. I mean, I wrote I wrote and recorded a Scorpion theme song that's in the audio book. Wow. And the video trailer. I mean, I have a home recording studio. I'm still recording. Um, and but no, I, I you know, and I don't know if you know, but I also had a video game created. There's a really no, I saw that. Yeah, Pinion Scorpion uh, Find the Hidden Objects game in both the Google and Apple app stores. And I'm pleased to say it's five star rated <clears throat> and it's free. Um, but no, I don't I don't I think because of the era. Musicians um, in general, I guess, is the better way to. Yeah, look. actually, I, I postulated in the books and even more so in the second book than the first book that his real love of the arts is painting. And with Thelma Smith, who's, you know, comes his girlfriend, if you will. Right. Books and literature. So it's more going to be books and painting than music. Although you never say never. You know, I got him with a, mag a magician. So maybe a musician, too. <laughs> Well, think of all the great famous people back, you know, in that era, both, I don't know many in the UK, but readers in the United States would, you know, know a number of those people that were back, you know, Thomas Edison or uh, or Henry Ford or Mark Twain, Babe Ruth, were all people that, you know, had, were, were uh, you know, becoming known. William Randolph Hearst, you know, there's Come lots on. of, lots of possibilities. I always ask this of, of writers, is there a piece of yourself Rick, in your own personality that is in the protagonist. Like the nice thing is, this is a somebody who you've created, but do you see yourself in Pinion in any way? No, I don't. Uh, I mean, obviously, since he's a figment of my imagination, you know, uh, I had to come up with everything he says and does. So there has to be some piece of me. But from what you're talking about, no, I actually bond more, I think, with Thelma Smith. Um, mm. You know, I, I guess the feminine side of me just, you know, I like strong, bright women mm -hmm. and, you know, who are, and, and she, like I hope I was most of my life, you know, was unconventional and didn't say it has to be this way because it was always right. this way. So I, I think I'm maybe more bond with her than I do anyone else in the book. Sounds like Melissa Etheridge. In a way, <laughs> absolutely. So, so you you write this book. You have this writers, you know, writing group that you're writing. You write this book. How did you find the publisher? How did that? How did that all unfold? Okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to start by saying, for full transparency, uh, I have been working as head of new business development for Blackstone Audio and Publishing since 2007. So I've been in the publishing industry. Uh, for 15 years now. Okay. But what, what happened was I, there was an agent, there are a number of agents that I dealt with in my role at Blackstone, acquiring authors and manuscripts from them. 
And there are a number of them that I really liked. And I happened to mention to one of them that I written this book. I, I was still writing it, in fact, at the time. And um, I said, you know, I, I could use a beta reader other than my reading group because they're kind of like prejudiced towards me, you know, right. I, you know, so. Yeah. And so she said, oh, I'll read the book. And so I sent her the, the early manuscript, which wasn't anywhere even completed yet. And she came back to me and said, I love this. I want to represent you. And I said, great. Wow. And so she did. And then what she did when I finished it is she took it out to publishers and we had multiple offers on the book. Wow. Um, and when, when, when she said to me, who do you want to go with? I said, well, I'd really like to go with Blackstone because I know the people there. I believe in the company. And, you know, I, I just would, I'd love it. And they did offer on it. And the, the president and CEO of the company, Josh Stanton, gave me an incredibly good offer and said he really wanted the book. The people there who read it, who reviewed it, raved about it. So I went, this to me is the perfect situation. We told the other companies no. And I ended up uh, signing a, a multi-book deal with, uh, with them. And in fact, I have another uh, book coming out in May uh, called Hotel California. And it is uh, a collect an anthology of mystery short stories. I have one story in there. There's a new Jack Reacher story in there. Wow. Um, there's uh, stories by Heather Graham, Amanda Flower, Reed Farrell Coleman, other huge names in mystery. And um, I've written a story in that. And it's a contemporary story about a New York City hitman who flees to Maui after a hit is put on his life. And it's the cat and mouse game between him and the hitman sent after him. Who's going to get who? Um, and that's the first in a series of music and murder books. The next one is thriller. And the next one is back in black after that. And wow. I've got a story in every one of them. That's <laughs> fantastic. By the way, he's Rick is being modest. Okay. Just in the sense of his first book has a ton of five-star ratings in Amazon. Over 80 plus ratings, and it's incredibly glowing. And I'm, I'm excited to read the book. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I've, I'm really fortunate. I mean, the, the uh, Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association had a conference last fall, and they voted the book their buzz book of the year. Uh, it's an Amazon editor's pick. It was a Barnes & Noble editor's pick. It's a Publisher's Weekly pick. I mean, I, I, I'm blown away by the, I really thought I wrote a fun book. I, I'm not even going to use the word a good book because I didn't set out to write anything other than something that was going to entertain people. I am mm. not Ernest Hemingway. That was not my goal to be, you know, him or uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. I wanted to write a book. I'd rather write a Harry Potter book. And that's not right. it. And that's not, that's not, not a, intuitive in any way. I want people to be entertained. And with my book in particular, with Scorpion, because we're living in such stressful times right now, and this book is so unstressful, you know, there's no blood, there's no guts. It's, it's an old classic throwback to a classic who done it in a kinder, gentler time with fun characters and humor. I want people to be entertained. So I'm just blown away by the reception that, it, that it's been getting. I, I mean, it's so pleasing. Well, it's a combination of all of these things that are that are coming together for you, you know, um, at, at a time in life where you really can, uh, you know, add all of your experience to it. I mean, there is a, it is a time. I'm tired. Nobody wants to read a, a book from a, a, an alcoholic melodrama, you know, <laughs> for, from the, you know, like the authors you had mentioned. They want something fun to take their mind off of things. I think that's primarily the reason why all of these Marvel comics and all of those sorts of things have taken hold of the movie right. industry because people yeah. don't want to deal with reality. I know. Rick, what's your writing? What's the process? What's your writing process? Do you have a particular time of day that you get in front of the, do you do it in longhand? Do you do it in, on the PC? Like what no, is your process? Okay. First of all, I do, I, I do it on the PC. Uh, you know, I do it on a Mac. I'm a Mac guy, but I, I, I type it out on a Mac. The only time I'll write anything in longhand is if I'm in this happens sitting at the dining room table 
and we're in the middle of a meal and a, an idea for a chapter or something comes to me, I've got always got a scratch pad next to me and I will write down that. But other than that, no, I'm always at a computer writing. I don't have a set writing schedule. Um, I What I try to do, depending on what I'm writing, is I try to set a goal for myself of how many words I want to write either by a week or a month. I don't do it by the day. I don't put myself in a discipline of saying, I'm going to write a thousand words today. Mm -hmm. I would rather say, I'm going to write 7,000 words by the end of this week and allow me to parse it out how I want to parse it out. Because I sometimes will sit down at 11 at night and start writing. Sometimes I'll write it eight in the morning and sometimes I'll write at three in the afternoon and it's really whenever I just when it comes to you when it comes yeah. to me. let's yeah. do this let's take a quick break our guest is Rick Blyweiss author we'll be back after this without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather emergency or time of day you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Arnie, we are back with our guest, Rick Blyweiss. You know, Rick, you're a living embodiment of it's never too late to, to launch a whole new burgeoning career. You know, and, you, you know, it's not just the first book. You have multiple books coming out and you have, as you announced, there's going to be an option on doing a a BBC or a British TV series that will eventually, I'm sure, work its way over to the U.S. So how do people get a hold of you? How do they find you? How do they find out about your life, what you're what you've written, what you're contemplating writing, where you're speaking, all that sort of thing? Well, uh, two ways. First of all, I, I have a website. It's rickblyweiss.com. And I think you'd have to put the, you know, tell people what the spelling of the name is. <laughs> B-L-E-I-W-E-I-S-S. -S. Right. Rickblyweiss.com. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm um, extremely uh, active on social media. Um, Twitter is Rick Blyweiss. LinkedIn is Rick Blyweiss. YouTube is Rick Blyweiss. Facebook and Instagram are Rick Blyweiss author. Um, and so, you know, I, I can be there. And then I also I'm taking emails from the public uh, with my email address created by Rick at Gmail dot com. So the email you know, you, is created by Rick at Gmail dot com. Right. You remind me of one of the other um, Wayne Gretzky quotes that you did use, which is he was fond of saying, when they asked him about why he was such a prolific, you know, scorer and the greatest of all time, he said, I skated to where I thought the puck was going to be, not where it is. Yeah. And your career, you've looked to go places that other people haven't gone and, and take, you know, your work and the people that you represent. And, you know, now your writings to a place that uh, it hasn't been taken before. And I commend you on that. That's a fantastic way to live your life, Rick. Well, thank you. I, you know, I, it's just who I am, you know, so I wish I could take credit for, you know, going, oh, I thought this out and, you know, I had a master plan. I didn't. It's just how it happened. And for our listeners who can't see Rick, he doesn't look a day over 40. So I think <laughs> this whole thing about him being 77 is just sort of a myth. I, look, I think you look great. You're a great liar. <laughs> <laughs> you look, Rick. You look fantastic. Will you join us again when the, when you have the next book ready Absolutely. to roll? I'd, I'd be happy to. I'd love to. In fact, if you have interest, I might even be able to get some of the uh, authors that are joining me. You know, in the uh, Hotel California book to do something if you wanted. Oh, that'd be that'd great. Be great. We would love that. We would love to. Arnie, Rick, thank you so much. Arnie, I will see you next week. Next Thank week, you. Scott. Rick, it's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know? I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening to News Talk KGVO. 
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.